Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your host, Nolan Kate, like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, less of the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik and I'm joined as ever by the wonderful Mr. Noel Kirkpatrick. Noel, how's it going? It's going all right. How are you today? Uh, I am the little. It's it's been hectic this week. It's been a, it's been a hectic week for me. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, you know, it's a good thing and a bad thing. It bad hectic, good hectic because I'm out of town at a gig getting paid. So that's good. That's a good thing. That's good. Uh, but it, what it means is that I'm completely out of the loop of what's been going on. Listeners will notice we have a pared down show list a bit this week because I've the only shows I've seen are the ones that we're talking about. So I'm like super out of the loop. What's been going on this week? Uh, well, let's see. I think the big news that affected you the most is uh, Review is going to come back for a short final season. I'm super so, excited about that. I you'll get you'll yeah. get at least a sh- you'll get some closure, <laughs> um, which is good. Mm-hmm. Um, Vinyl got renewed for a second season, even though no one watched the first episode. So you know that happened. That's a thing. Okay, that's a thing. Um, and Paul Lee got uh, ousted from ABC. Paul Lee's the president of ABC uh, programming over there, and he got ousted in apparently a bit of a power struggle e- internally, and so he's on his way out. And he got replaced with the woman who was in charge of drama development over at ABC. And uh, she's the first black woman to run a network. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it was a weird bit of uh, chair shifting happening over at ABC and ABC has a reputation for being super cutthroat in -hmm. terms of its corporate structure and no small part, I imagine because Disney is like that. So yeah, it, it was kind of a busy TV news week this week. That's intriguing because ABC has had one of the more consistent, like slates, at least with their comedies. They've been very consistent. They've had a lot of good yeah. shows recently, so that's that's interesting that that's where we're seeing the power struggle and not other places. Yeah, Lee was a big force in that uh, making ABC significantly more diverse, and so his ouster is interesting. But I think the failure of them to really catch on drama wise. Mm-hmm. Aside from, uh, thank God it's Thursday programming block, which has done really, really well, has done really well, even though it's also hemorrhaging viewers. But what network isn't hemorrhaging viewers, really? So, yeah. So, yeah, someone basically iced him out. Yeah, well, that will be interesting to, to see how that progresses. Uh, once again, I'm glad I don't work in that industry. I'm worried about American crime and what that happens. Since I feel like that was really Paul Lee's um, baby. So, well, we are going to talk more about American crime later this week. We are not going to talk about vinyl because I looked no. at that and said two hours and said, no, I, <laughs> I, I'll have thoughts next week. Listeners, uh, there's a bunch of shows that were this week that if there are things to have thoughts on, I will have thoughts on next week. But I was not setting aside two hours for vinyl when I could be watching other things. Uh, so, yeah, I based on everyone else's reaction you made uh, the right choice yeah (laughs) but again more on that next week this week we're going to be talking with returning guest long overdue returning guest josh beagle of masterpiece cinema and movie mezzanine at the dvd shelf we're going to be talking key and peel just super fun very fun it was it's it's a really good conversation i love any excuse to a talk to josh and b talk to talk about key and peel these are good things this is chocolate in my peanut butter like everything here is good 
Oh, why are you ruining peanut butter? Why are you ruining chocolate with peanut butter, Kate? Peanut That's butter terrible. is delicious, and you are a heathen for not liking it. Yeah, I've gotten that before. <laughs> well, uh, we do have a full week of TV, or I should say a lot of discussion. It's not a full week in TV, but a, a full week of discussion, shall we say, ahead of us. Yeah. So let's dive right in. We'll take a break and come back with our week in comedy. This week in comedy, Noel's going to talk a little bit about uh, the premiere of Love, which debuted on uh, on Netflix this week. I have not yet seen it, so Noel, that one's going to be all you. Then we'll yeah. both talk a little bit about the premiere of Last Week Tonight, and then we'll both talk Broad City's premiere, Two Chains, and we'll round things out with some Brooklyn Nine-Nine house mouses. Because how could I not talk about Brooklyn Nine-Nine when they bring in classical musicians into the mix? So that'll be coming at the end of the segment. But first up, Love debuted on Netflix this week. Uh, Noel, I had completely forgotten that this was a thing that was happening in the, the busyness of this past week. What did you think of this premiere? And it feels like this hasn't made the splash of some of the other Netflix shows. Uh, I don't know if you would agree with that sentiment. And if so or not, what do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, it seems it seems like a really low key release, but I think a lot of people are. I think Fuller House and Daredevil are sucking up a lot of the Netflix promotional um, oxygen. So I feel like Love's being slid in before these two big projects that are getting a lot of attention. Um, but this is I only I only get, I only had time to watch the premiere. Um, so and it's fine-ish um it's very much a kind of late 20s early 30s midlife crisis romantic comedy type stuff jillian jacobs uh from community and paul rust from various projects i guess i didn't i don't know him from anything really um play people who are forlorn in relationships and are basically looking to kind of restart their lives and they actually don't meet until spoiler alert the very end of the premiere and uh so the first the premiere is very much spent establishing what their lives are like and where they are personally and so it's it's okay um i'm not the biggest judd apatow fan and i feel like rust is basically doing a woody allen impression a lot of the times which i mean depending on your tolerance for woody allen is an okay thing or not okay thing and yeah so i mean it's it has some funny bits and it has that kind of indie comedy type feel to it. And it feels very samey to a lot of those kind of indie romantic comedies that you can see in movies um, fairly often now. And so I'm not like super compelled to watch any more episodes, even though I'm going to do quite a few, probably just because I love Jillian Jacobs and who doesn't because she's fantastic. But yeah, so I'm not like super excited about love or anything about that. Um, but yeah, no, it, it might be okay. Um, people who I've seen on Twitter who have already watched all of it 
because those those people have the time to do that and much respect for that um i basically said it doesn't get really solid until halfway through which is i think par for the course for a netflix show at this point so yeah i mean maybe i'll give it at least five episodes but um i've got a lot of other stuff on my plate so maybe later on in the year I'll get back to it. Maybe it's a summer show for you? Yeah, it might be a summer show. It just depends on other obligations. But yeah, I could see coming back to this in the summer, probably. And remind me, half hour or hour? That's a great question. No, the premiere is like 40 minutes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The second episode, I think, is like 30, 35. So it's one of those things where Netflix is just like, oh, yeah, you guys just do whatever you need. It's fine. It's cool. So yeah, I mean, like the full the Fuller House premiere, which I've seen people talking about, is like thirty nine minutes long. There's no reason for full, no Fuller need. House to be thirty nine minutes long. Yeah, can we stop with these like thirty nine minute, forty minute, half hour show? Like, if you're gonna be a forty minute show, that's great. Have enough material for forty minutes, but to be a, structured as a half hour show and then just run an extra ten minutes long, yeah, tends not to work. Yeah, and the premiere of Love didn't have that problem in too many areas. It felt a little padded in in a couple of spaces, but I mean, also, I've just come to accept the fact that Apatow's film, Apatow's work just needs an editor, and no one ever makes him have one. So, Hmm. eh. Well, uh, you said two words that are kryptonite to me, uh, which is Woody Allen. (laughs) (laughs) So, so yeah. I'm really unintrigued by that part of it, but like you, I also love Gillian Jacobs, and so that's enough of a reason for me to check it out. Well, can I give you like a prime example of what made me think of Woody Allen? Go for it. All right. So he, the Paul Rust character, gets basically lightly seduced by these two girls at a party to have a threesome, and he finds out that the girls are actually sisters, and he freaks out about it. And it's so Woody Allen, even in like the delivery and the cadence and the writing of it is exactly how Woody Allen would ruin his chance at a threesome. I just went, oh, I've seen this before or I I haven't seen it before, but it's just like this is exactly how Allen would write and perform this. And it was just really bizarre and it just felt kind of stale. Yeah. Yeah, I just am really even outside of real world issues with with Allen. Uh, I just said don't I don't find that character interesting much like the, my, part of my reticence with vinyl is I'm done with antiheroes I'm really not interested in in middle aged white antiheroes. Um, Good thing we're not talking about Better Call Saul then. <laughs> we're gonna get there, uh, but I I'm also really not interested in this type for yeah. for romantic leads male romantic leads but uh i will report back once i've seen it because i don't want to try to have too formed an opinion we always try to avoid that uh before i watch it so unless you have more thoughts on love shall we move on to last week tonight it's back and i'm so glad it's my favorite hbo show that i watch on youtube (laughs) (laughs) did you have any uh now because you watch clips on youtube when they show up how much of the episode wound up in clip form do you know uh i saw the main segment about voting Okay. That's I I always watch like the main segment and however long that is that's what I get to watch. There were a couple of their delightful segments. We had um some discussion of Scalia. We had also a fabulous response <laughs> to a uh a New Zealand um politician getting struck in the face with a dildo. 
I saw I saw I saw gifts of that. Yes, it was. That looked really funny. It was really funny, and just the way that they talked about how they weren't going to cover it until till he tweeted about it, and like, mm-hmm. and so it was delightful. Uh, but yeah, that main segment I thought was fantastic and a a topic I agree strongly with. So it always I I, I always try to be aware of when my uh, similar political leanings may be influencing my appreciation of the show. But I think even if you're not someone who thinks that vote, having forcing people to have photo IDs is idiotic um, for voting the way that personally I do. Um, I think it just, it, it was really well handled and structured. And like, the, again, just having that research-based commentary was something I've so missed. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, no, I agree with you re- uh, regarding the politics of this because it is ridiculous. And um, a lot of this also just is a nice way for him to ease into the election season because he'd been talking before, um, after he'd basically gone on hiatus and had time to like go on the talk show circuit a little bit. He talked about the fact that he wasn't really interested in covering the election until it was actually happening basically on the show. So this felt like a nice acknowledgement of we we can talk about elections plural Mm -hmm. and just the politics around them but we don't really everyone else is talking about donald trump ad nauseum we don't need to do that and honestly it's not what we do so i think that's a really good good way for them to differentiate themselves but it also works within their wheelhouse and them exposing this idea of state representatives railing against the evils of people voting who are dead or people who don't have id and then voting for their missing fellow states states uh, representatives by leaning over desks with sticks and voting <laughs> that way is just like ridiculous. And so that was really that was really interesting and really compelling. And a lot of this stuff is like research I had seen because I was following a lot of the repealing of the Voting Rights Act aspects, um, which is especially relevant given where I live in the South, where a lot of that stuff was enacted to prevent us from doing exactly what. A number of states in the south are doing and states elsewhere so that was really on my radar when it was happening so seeing this was a nice refresher on the fact that oh god our political system is really screwed up yep and just i love like that you can't you don't even need to write better comedy than like the design of the voting sticks they're just it's like i felt like i was watching i don't know like rumple the bailey or like a certain <laughs> season of like black adder or something like, it just yeah. felt so it just was so ridiculous uh and hilarious and you know ac- accentuates the point perfectly so uh welcome back last week tonight i have most definitely mi- i'm missing the nightly show this week so yeah, much <laughs> but uh yeah i'm very glad to have john and oliver back and we'll see how they manage how long they manage to avoid topics like trump um yeah and good on you for not you know like he gets enough coverage we don't need more trump talk so uh i look forward to what they do next week we also had another premiere this week of course and that's broad city which came back for season three and the premiere was called two chains uh, what did you think of this premiere and uh even just specifically what, how did you feel about that opening montage the that opening montage was just fantastic. <laughs> um, it was, I think, the first example of um, legitimate bathroom humor. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, that I actually really appreciated, in part because it was in a bathroom. But I, I normally don't go for that kind of like body humor. But I mean, this was, 
I'm making a joke and it's not working at all because I'm about <laughs> to explain it. But no, so it was really funny um, and just really well edited and really well put together and very demo- very demonstrative of like what their lives are and how both of these women live their lives. And I think that's really, really great. And then the rest of the episode was basically the kind of thing that I love about Broad City where it's Abby and Alana hanging out together, tra- traveling through New York and getting into massive amounts of trouble and those are always like the best episodes of broad city i think is when they're basically exploring the city so that was just a lot of fun um the porta potty part was great (laughs) um and it that's just a really at this point it's a pretty standard joke with porta potties now to have someone trap in there while it's being like lifted onto a truck but it was still really, really funny this week, in part because the punchline wasn't her getting loaded onto the porta potty truck, but rather the chain getting stuck on the bread truck mm-hmm. was the punchline of that entire segment. And I thought that was just really, really clever way to upend expectations for that scene, which is, I think, why it was so successful. Well, I was just, I was just glad that um, that she didn't come out of the porta potty like coated covered yeah you know which is sort of why i was expecting it to go so i was pleasantly mm-hmm. surprised with that but no it was it was very <laughs> it was very funny very well done um my only like tiny complaint is i the the tag ink onto the painting was a bit you know it was it was a bit uh i guess uh telegraphed yeah absolutely uh, so that was a that one wasn't quite so successful and also i, I this is such a just such a ridiculous thing for me to notice um, but I did like that when we got a little closer image of the painting, you could see that there actually was texture to it yeah. and it wasn't just a blank canvas. It would have been nice to notice that earlier, uh, so that it's not just a blank canvas, but it is, you can see like a pattern and everything. Um, but that's such a ridiculous thing for me to have noticed. Uh, it was a really funny episode. And, and again, like this show, the attention to character um, and their interactions is so much of what fuels it. Yeah. But I also love the attention to detail. I love that at the, in the closing like sequence, when they finally get the chain off of Alana, she's got like blood and bruise marks under her chest where they try from trying to get the chain up. And like, I love that this, they don't just go for the, the joke of Jaime coming in and everything, but it's actually, there's like, I guess a small level of body horror there. I don't know. Things like that are part of what I really like about the show. It's just the sensibility of it. And also just the openness of this idea that she's just like, I'm still kind of really turned on to this. Girl, you're bleeding. Exactly. And I'm just (laughs) like, that's fantastic. And I mean, it's just really reflective of like their different approaches, but that they're both still like super close friends that they'd spend who knows how long trying to get that chain Mm. off of her. And not just finding a bolt cutter. Yeah. You know, <laughs> details, <laughs> details. Uh, any other thoughts about uh, the Broad City premiere? No, really solid. I, I'm, I'm really glad it's back. Yeah, I also, just the, the trapeze thing, just how anticlimactic <laughs> it was, and yet how excited Lincoln was at the same time talking to his mom and everything. Just yeah. a, another great just detail of character. So, so much fun. Very glad to have those two ladies back in our lives week to week. But let's round things up with Brooklyn Nine-Nine, House Mouses. This was one of the fun surprises of the week for me because, uh, of course, the way I knew to prioritize Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Noel, is that you had, you had uh, tweeted me <laughs> that uh, we were going to have to talk classical musicians. And, yes. Uh, so I, I will say that then I was watching it. I kept waiting for the musicians to show up, and they eventually do. But it's like the, the B or C plot. Uh, 
I had a lot of fun with this episode because of that classical musician subplot, but also because of everything else. It was another really solid episode for them. Uh, why don't for those who don't watch it, why don't you let uh, listeners know what 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 happens in House Mouses? Well, uh, what made me think about Kate was the fact that um, Holt is very excited that they have a celebrity case that they have to break, and the celebrity turns out to be like the first year oboist. And no one is excited about that except for Holt. <laughs> and so that was a, that was a lot of fun. And to watch Holt be like starstruck, and so be like really giddy about meeting someone who, for him, is really, really, really famous. And everyone else going, it's just a, it's just a guy who plays a glorified flute. Who, what are we, what are we doing here? And so it was really, really exciting and really, really funny. I thought. And I, of course, immediately thought of Kate because Kate's a classically trained musician, does a number of number of classical works. So I was I was very excited. And then the other flip side of the episode is that uh, Scully and Hitchcock are put into the field basically to break up a drug drug ring, and it just all goes horribly, horribly awry in the best possible way. <laughs> <laughs> and then they still manage to do okay in the end because, of course, they did. Because they used to be good cops, even though they're actually just really, really great at paperwork. Yeah. Well, and so, it's, I like that yeah. they acknowledge that somebody needs to do the paperwork, and they're all very right. glad to let them do it. So, yeah. Right. And because they do stuff like pretend to be the cowboy mafia. <laughs> <laughs> they're the Dallas Buyers Club. That's yeah. That's totally a thing. Yeah. And then at Black the same Fred. time. <laughs> yeah. Fred. It's just Fred. <laughs> yeah. And at the same time, the ladies are conquering their fears. Uh, so that so there were three storylines this week. Uh, the, the stuff with Scully and Hitchcock, I thought, worked really well, and it was nice to see a shakeup in the dynamic. They, you, they usually end up just very much on the uh, the 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 periphery, and yeah. so to see them get a little bit more prominently featured, I thought, was a nice change of pace. I'm sure they'll go back to being just very much on the periphery next week, but it's just fine. It's fun. It's, yeah, it's it's fun to change things up. I enjoyed the conquering of fears, even if it was a bit. Straight, you know, a bit going, you know, like you knew what was going to happen, but yeah. it's still, you know, I, I enjoyed the wig because heaven forbid <laughs> Gina put her hair, her actual hair in a ponytail. Um, so, so nice, nice stuff there. But also the, um, the, the, the classical musician thing, uh, in case anyone is wondering, the case is the oboist, his $40,000 oboe has been stolen and they're just, so they have to investigate, and Holt is shocked to discover, uh, or I guess not shocked, but he he's, doesn't even register that this you know super famous oboist lives in a crappy apartment and has no money uh, because <laughs> classical musicians make no money. Now, by the time you're the lead, uh, the first you know the principal oboist in a major symphony, you're making real money. But on the whole, no, we don't. We don't make. <laughs> We don't make a lot of money. Um, but I, I cannot speak to oboes, but I do know uh-huh. for violins, a $40,000 violin is a very inexpensive professional level violin. That's like something you get maybe like when you're starting in college and uh, the way you afford it is student loans or somebody in your family has a violin somehow or y- you win a competition and they give you one. But that's actually really, really inexpensive on the scale of violins. Um, the last time I bought a bow, uh, for example, I played on a $20,000 bow. 
they like to I was trying different bows. Like so like you can buy a bow easily that's forty thousand dollars, let alone a violin. So my mind is like exploding and leaking out of my ear a little bit right oh, now. Oh yeah. My teacher <laughs> that I had in high school, um, who is wonderful, when he and his wife got married, they sold two or three of his bows to pay for their the down payment of their house to like yeah. It's very, okay. very expensive. So, yeah, okay. And we make no money, and we spend our entire lives training and getting a degree uh, in something that is then not going to pay us anything. So so just like a regular humanities degree, basically. Basically. Basically, <laughs> if you have to spend $40,000 on an oboe to even try to get a job. So, yeah. Uh, so, so, so elements of this, really, really <laughs> accurate. Other elements, um, you would never... You, like, by the time you're spending that much on, like, a violin... Like, violins are all, like, registered and... and like, this way you, people don't steal viol- like, nice, expensive violins because you can't sell them anywhere legitimate because if you lose your violin or somebody steals your violin and then tries to sell it to a reputable dealer, they'll figure out right away so that's wow you're ruining my plan for the weekend thanks yeah so so he like he he would never sell his own oboe like that that would not happen but what would happen is like stashing all the food in the break room yeah (laughs) you can absolutely play pay classical musicians in food uh and to get them to do gigs for you like if they're in the collegiate level certainly just like give us free pizza and we'll come you know play your rehearsal for for free, yeah. Not when you're in the professional realm, of course, because we have things like rent. But uh, <laughs> but yeah. So so it was it was a lot of fun, and I, that's I've now been way, dig- digressed way too far into the the world of classical musicianship. But uh, that was something that I was enjoying this week, and it's not often that I right. get to actually you know relate on that level to it. Which to is why episode. I think your digression is totally okay. Okay, well, I feel yeah. validated now. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. <laughs> How well, often do you get to see classical musicians on TV these days if you're not walking watching Mozart in the Jungle? If you, yeah, if you're not watching Mozart in the Jungle, you're pretty much not not seeing them. Yeah. But yeah. Um so so just a lot and I like that this is a recurring thing for Holtz uh, cuz of course Carl Brunheim, right? Yeah. Is is previous favorite musician. Um, well, what wins your week in comedy? Um, I'm going to give it to Broad City this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a really funny premiere and back back to having the show back. Uh, just felt really, really good. And it was a really solid episode. A uh, show that we didn't discuss. Uh, Fresh Off the Boat had a really good episode this week as well. But Broad City was really, really good this week. Yeah, I'm going to give it to Broad City. If it... if if the um, the tertiary plot had been a little stronger or more interesting, I'm, you know, Brooklyn Nine Nine would have been in contention for me. But I mean, Broad City, love it, so good. Um, now we'll take a break and come back with our week in reality and genre. Thank you. 
week in reality and genre, we're going to talk a little bit about the Amazing Race premiere, I Should Have Been a Boy Scout, the Gravity Falls finale, Weird Megan 3, Take Back the Falls. Uh, <laughs> at least that's how I assume it's supposed to be said. Maybe I think that's how it's supposed to be said. Something like that, yeah. Then we have the X-Files, Babylon, The Flash, Escape from Earth 2, and we're also going to talk, meaning I'm going to rant a bit, about last week's episode of The 100, Watch the Thrones. But first up, uh, Rooster Teeth is on The Amazing Race this, this year, and that's very exciting for me. How did you feel about this premiere and their, their use of all like internet-based celebrities or, I guess, uh, figures, prominent figures online? Well, because, well, one, I've been out of the Amazing Race for a number of seasons, um, so I'm not, like, super, like, geared into how the the race runs these days, Um, but the use of the the social media and internet folks uh, basically just made me feel really old, um, (laughs) because apart from Rooster Teeth, I didn't know any of these people, really. <laughs> I didn't know a single one. I was surprised like, to see that Rooster Teeth was on there because, you know, I've been fans of theirs going back to, you know, college. Um, but I had yeah. no idea that they were on. And it was then a bunch of other people I had never heard of. And so, so I was like, ah, ah, somebody that I care about. Yay. Right. And I, I'd, I'd heard of um, Tyler Oakley um, just through a number of, like, pop culture type stuff. And so I was vaguely familiar with um, Oakley, but the rest of it, I just went, oh, Rooster Teeth got people. Okay, yeah, I know these I know these two. All right, I don't know any of these other people at all. Um, so I guess it's okay. I mean, it seems like a kind of a weird, catchy thing to, like, draw on a younger viewing audience for The Amazing Race. More than anything, it feels like a really cynical attempt to do that. Um... But, I mean, it's fine. I mean, CBS wants younger viewers. They need younger viewers. And so this is a nice way to do that, I suppose. Um, but basically, I'm also just like, well, these people are people who are, like, always, like, turned on to the internet. And now they're not allowed to have, like, phones. <laughs> and so I'm I'm interested to see if anyone, like, goes through technology withdrawals over the course of this. But I'm also just worried about the fact that... They're already ha- they already had two people discuss taking a penalty on the first roadblock. Which, again, I haven't watched the show in a while, but I immediately went, that's not a good sign. That shouldn't be happening. That, I mean, the challenge didn't seem of digging through, sifting through sand to get pieces to make a uh, mask. Seemed a, didn't seem like it was something that should have been really difficult. And then it's just like, oh, I'm not getting enough pieces. I'm wandering around outside not finding drums, even though I was told to be in the cave. Ah, oh, maybe we should take a penalty on the first challenge. Yeah, that's a really great idea, guys. Let's let's do that. And so I, f- I don't feel really good about some of these teams' chances <laughs> going forward. Uh, how did you feel? Because you, I think, watch The Amazing Race far more often than I do. Yeah, I... I well, the... Um... That element of watching the super plugged in people uh, get get less they have to deal with not being plugged in, I think is actually I hadn't that hadn't occurred to me, but I would totally get jittery after a while. Well, I guess you probably don't have the opportunity because you're constantly moving from one thing to the to the next. But that will be yeah. an interesting element, I think. And and for me, what this what this added because uh, I was not looking forward to another gimmick. Uh, mm-hmm. for, the, for another gimmick season. But what this is adding in an interesting way is some level of the teams knowing each other. 
yeah. uh, because of the community. Uh, you know, the, s certain of them are aware of others and certain of them are not. But that already starts starts people out with connections and a lot allegiances, you know, of, sure. of to some extent. So how that shapes things could be interesting. Um, but no, this was a pretty, I mean, like you say, you should, anybody who's giving up in the first challenge, uh, yeah, that's not a good sign. And uh, it was not a difficult challenge. I mean, like, on the scale of Amazing Race challenges. It seemed pretty straightforward and yeah. easy. Because I've seen really complicated pain-in-the-ass challenges when I was watching it. And I was just like, this is just putting together a mask. This, this actually seemed easier than trying to find the mariachi guy who wasn't playing. <laughs> yeah, so so that's not a that's not a positive sign. I would say a positive indicator, um, but yeah, that, that's really. I mean, I think again, having a non-elimination round in, on the first episode, I guess, kind of makes sense so that you get to know the people a bit more. But it also feels like a bit of a cop out because they mm -hmm. didn't want to anger a fan base. On the right first, off the bat. Right off the bat, yeah. Yeah. So that's a little... I'm not sure how I feel about that, but I think we're going to have to kind of wait and see how... At least I don't, I don't feel like I have a strong sense of these teams after one sure. episode. So uh, I, while I do have rooting interests in Rooster Teeth... Right. Uh, I'm the same way. I was just like, they're the only team I recognize, so they're kind of the team I'm rooting for by default. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to wait a bit longer to have stronger thoughts, I guess, on the season or, or the premise beyond what we've already already said. So on that note, I have plenty of strong thoughts about Gravity Falls. So let's talk about Gravity Falls, which had its finale. We're beginning three, take back the falls. And uh, I thought it was really, really touching and really fun. <laughs> I thought they did a good job of blending some callbacks with, the natural culmination of the storyline yeah. and uh again balancing funny and silly and moving all all into one delightful uh warm and fuzzy package how did you feel about the finale uh i really really enjoyed it i have like a weird relationship with gravity falls in which i was only like really watching it sporadically for the most part and then i guess towards the end of this install towards the end of the show basically is when i started like watching it well i was about to say watching it every week but that's a lie because disney xd would just air the episodes as soon as they were ready i was gonna say like you had to be watching it sporadically it was the only right. option it was the only option um but no so like i was only watching it every now and then i wasn't like oh there was a new episode oh i gotta watch it and it was just like oh there was a new episode eh, i'm okay but so i started like watching it much more consistently i should say and so but this was still like a really fun interesting episode of the show i liked how the various symbols um that people have been wearing for the entire show ended up feeding into the circle to trap bill i thought that was really cool um but mostly i was like on the verge of tears mm -hmm. as soon as i figured out that uh the brothers had traded places because i figured out that they had traded places and then i saw the memory gun and i just oh no and I had, like, my blanket pulled up to, like, my eyes. Because I was just like, no, he's going to forget everything. He's going to forget about them. And then he did. And I, <laughs> I, I was, like, I was, I was crying just a little bit. Because yeah. I was really sad about it. And so I was glad that, I was glad that they, like, undid it, basically, through a scrapbook about memories and that sort of thing. And then that they went on their own adventure, finally. Because I've, I've loved the the Stan and what's his brother's name? Ford. Stanley Ford. and Stanford, so Stan yeah. and Ford. 
standing forward. So I've loved their dynamics since they've re- they've brought forward into things, and it's just been really interesting and really great stuff. So them being able to go off in their own adventure, I thought was really, 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 really great. Uh, yeah, I just really loved it, and I'm sad Gravity Falls is over, but it felt kind of like time because, again, I think it was good that they went. Yeah, we didn't want this to drag out forever, and seriously, how long can the summer go on for? Type of deal. So it ended really nicely, and it, I'm I'm glad that it managed to like go out kind of on its own terms. Even though at the same time, I, there were just massive amount of ads for look at all these cool new action shows we've got coming on <laughs> Disney XD. Plus um, that other not quite so actiony show about the girl with the wand that always looks really good, and I haven't watched any of it, even though I I want to, and I haven't. <laughs> but yeah, I watch Star Wars Rebels on Disney XD, so I'm part of the problem. Ah, fair enough. Well, I I agree that I'm glad they walked back the memory loss because there are a few like the the ten people all being like, oh, there's a prophecy we haven't told you about until the finale. Like that's all very tidy and convenient. Um, but I'll go with it. And yeah, it's okay. Yeah, and yeah. and them walking back the memory loss is again convenient and and rings falls. But I don't care because I don't want it, them to crush my spirit entirely. And I think they they hit that note so effectively. Yeah. With with all the characters, with like including Seuss in that, and and not just Mabel, um, mm-hmm. that it felt earned. Yeah. When, when they're like, you know what, we're not going to do this to you <laughs> in the finale. We'll we'll fix it. It's it's, it's sort of like it feels at least for me like the creator going, it's cool. Like. I, we all know that really that's not what would happen, but that would be too sad. So let's yeah. just pretend this is what happened instead, and <laughs> and that'll be canon. Yes. Uh, yeah. So so I was totally okay with it. It felt fit more with the tone of the show, um, and the 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 closing notes were all really fun. The one of us, one of us <laughs> with teenager them was was really nice. But what this um, aside from you know the things we've already mentioned, what this finale really hit home to me is just how fantastic a villain bill is yes he's great he's fan like just the writing the vocal performance the creativity of it like i think it's i think it's so so well done and again i just the boy i don't have the name in front of me but the 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 choices you know the way to read that script for bill um it is not necessarily what what one would anticipate if you just read the script you wouldn't you know you didn't know the character if it was your first time watching the show or, or reading a script for the show that isn't how these lines usually get delivered but it's so oh it's, it's great it's alex hirsch the creator of the show yeah yeah so it makes sense that he knows the tone of the show so so well is his show but um and he yeah. cast himself as the big villain which is some sort of weird meta commentary that i'm we have to work out at some point yeah but no this 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 blend of of insanity but but fun (laughs) but but whimsy but horribleness like just torturing and just real darkness but always with like a kind of cheery chuckle is just really unsettling Uh, sure i mean an entire chair made out of the townspeople of gravity falls Mm mm-hmm that's just deeply disturbing, yeah. and all, but not disturbing enough is yeah. the nice thing. Yeah, yeah, it, it walks that line really, really well, I would say. So that's, I guess, my final thought on Gravity Falls. It, it a really fun show that ended really, really well, and I'm going to miss it. But you're right, it was time. 
Yeah. Well, speaking of time, it's time to talk about the next show of the week because it was the first one. I, I watched this before I even watched Gravity Falls because I saw pictures on Twitter. I saw reactions, and I was like, WTF, mate, happened this week on the X-Files Babylon. So we're going to try to not go too long on this, but, but Noel, what the hell did we watch? <laughs> I don't know, and... I was really, I wasn't like really grooving on this episode for a little while. I was just like, oh, wow, Southeast Texas is coming out super well right now. And last week I said that I one of the things I was enjoying about this miniseries was that it wasn't afraid to behave as if it were still in the 1990s. And this week I just went, oh, here's the bad part of that. And so just the heavy handedness of the pre- prejudicial people around them was just a lot to deal with um, as they dealt with his suicide, uh, two suicide bombers who came in and blew up an art gallery. Um, and so dealing with that, I was just like, oh, so Mulder and Scully and Mills and Einstein get to look really progressive and liberal and tolerant, and everyone else gets to look like a jerk. Okay, this is great. And then they just went for a trip on shrooms, and it completely lost me entirely. I'm not entirely sure what this episode was about um, in terms of the kind of story it wanted to tell. I feel like it was Chris Carter wanting to cut loose a little bit and give the company some funny stuff, to, really funny stuff to play. And the mushroom sequences, as a standalone thing, it's fine. As a part of that episode, I'm not entirely sure what it's about and why it's there. But yeah, I just, I didn't like this episode. I think I actually liked this episode less than I liked the premiere episode, which I felt was just kind of boring and this was just i'm not sure what i was supposed to glean from this episode basically how did you feel about it i really liked parts of it Mm -hmm. and it just to me it really felt like i was watching uh somebody with a lot of privilege um try to make a funny episode well, so, yeah, Chris Carter decided to make a funny episode. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. So, so just like I if I can set aside how let's be kind and say problematic. Sure. The suicide bombing storyline is and just yeah. like p- replace that with fill in the blank instigating incident that requires you to talk to someone in a coma. Yeah. And also lets us bring up topics of faith. Uh, because yeah. that is such a strong thread with with Carter. It's a topic he's clearly very, very interested in. Um, then I really like this episode. I'm down with the, the goofy Mulder and Scully take two. I'm down with the ridiculous um, shroom trip and everything. It just It's a silly episode. If I'm not being really bothered by the... the I get, if I'm not being really bothered by their attempts to engage with suicide bombing and racism and uh and i mean just like <laughs> I, I saw somebody post on twitter and i don't remember who it was so i can't uh, give them credit i apologize can you think of a time on on tv in a tv episode we saw somebody praying who was muslim and suicide bombing or terrorism wasn't somehow tied into the episode ever no. in american tv it's it's probably I, I can't think of an instance but it's there's probably there's probably at least one somewhere 
but I can't think of it right now. And when that's the situation, in, in that when that's the way that being Muslim is portrayed on television, we only mention, we only actually ever, show, you might mention it passing, but we only actually ever show someone praying if we're going to then have... Uh, have suicide bombing and terrorism be a part of the conversation because of course that's the only reason we would ever in, you know in, interact with uh, somebody praying let alone somebody who's Muslim praying um, so that when that is your starting point in American television having that be your jumping off point for your lighthearted comedy does not work uh, yeah. so and it just seems like somebody Carter just being completely unaware of, of a problem in, re- in representation in in television so is that something like if you set aside that part of the episode if you're able to do that are like how do you feel about the rest of it like how did you feel about Mulder and Scully take two was that too on the nose for you did you have fun with it what did you think about that part well I have a difficult time setting things aside in Mm -hmm. episodes so I mean hypothetically I'll I'll go with it but I mean it's just think of this more as a thought experiment um so I was okay with Mulder and Scully Take Two. Um, I generally don't mind when the X Files gets kind of meta on itself like that, and so doing that just didn't really bother me. Though I also do not need either of them to be a backdoor spinoff type of thing because they're too much like Mulder and Scully. And if the X Files were to come back in some sort of capacity that didn't include Duchovny and Anderson, I don't want a rehash of. Uh, Mulder and Scully, and just like I wouldn't want a rehash of um, Reyes and Doggett either. Um, I'd want something new and fresh, which I think is the other thing that is kind of like grading on the X-Files, is that I'd like to see someone, see some other people play in the sandbox of the X-Files, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, so, if I set aside this, the, the stuff that basically makes this episode tone-deaf and kind of terrible, uh, it's that... Yeah, I mean, I, I just can't separate. I, okay. I want to. I really do. But no, it's that's just fair like, I, I'm sure if it weren't happening and we weren't doing this weird achy, breaky heart with the lone gunman and Skinner, and I'd be like, oh, this is kind of funny. But as it is, I'm just like, why am I having this detour to talk to a guy in a coma? And how is that working exactly? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I just wasn't, I, I, I couldn't, I can't, I'm sorry. I tried, I, I did, <laughs> but I just kept going back to the fact that the context that that happens in and the context that the rest of this happens in just goes in circles for me and not in, like, interesting circles. And the entire discussions of faith and everything else, I feel like gets weighed down by the fact that they, again, get to look really tolerant and forward-thinking and everyone else around them gets to look really dumb and prejudiced and deeply intolerant and i'm just like oh yeah this is just it's heavy-handed in the bad in a bad sort of heavy-handedness and it's heavy-handedness in a way that carter tends to be heavy-handed when he wants to do something like this so yeah i i I can't i'm sorry (laughs) no don't don't apologize i mean there's that's absolutely legitimate and fair enough i completely understand i mean like would there when the the SWAT team goes in and busts up the 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 hotel, the, the yeah the, the the terrorist cell, they don't actually show them finding any like bombs. At least that I saw. Maybe I missed it, but 
they don't find them they don't like see them we don't see them find guns we don't see them. so it's just like yeah they beat up those people who were praying and clearly yeah. they were a terrorist like it's just really really unfortunate um again to put it very very kindly yeah so uh and i don't know why i'm being so kind but apparently i am today uh, it was just yeah it was just really really problematic but i i i was fine with the molder uh and scully 2.0 especially i really enjoyed lauren ambrose uh yeah she was great yeah i had, I was less connecting with robbie amell i like i could really buy her as like if the x-files started now lauren ambrose could be scully totally but not robbie amell <laughs> unfortunately uh as much as i do really like him on flash but um yeah the the parts of the sh- that episode that, that worked for me, I, I'm totally down with the super silly, super ridiculous, and they're on shrooms and little gunmen are there, and why not? Like, I think that's yeah. great that the show is will- willing to do that with part of its, you know, the time that it has this this short season. And I'm glad we didn't get another super serious episode, but um, yeah, the rest of it, yeah, that's a problem. Let's instead. Let's let's move on. We've spent too much time on this. Let's let's instead just focus on the silly, like I was saying, and talk a little bit about Flash Escape from Earth Two, and let's kick off with how fantastic uh, uh, Grant Gustin was as uh, Barry Allen, not the Flash, because that was my favorite part of this episode. Yeah, no, it, I I was um I had gotten to watch this episode um a little bit in advance because CW put it on a screener. Uh, so I got to watch it like a couple of hours beforehand and I texted uh, Corey Barker, who was on, I was just like, Barry too is a treat and he is such a treat. I mean, he's great. Um, and I just, I mean, him geeking out about a television show and no one caring and he just gets all like kind of draws in on himself or him like waving his wingtip shoes and talking about their tread. It was just really, really funny, and he felt so distinct from our Barry Allen that, but in a way that you still recognize him as Barry Allen, which is an important thing to do when you're doing alternate Earth type stuff, is that the characters still be vaguely recognizable as the counterpart that we're used to. And I think that that's why Barry 2 works as well as he does, is that he is... He's Barry Allen if Barry Allen hadn't been raised by Joe or or gotten struck by lightning. He, he'd kind of be this weebish mass of insecurity and nerves, but still, like, confident and smart. And not Well, not confident, but smart in, and confident in his abilities. But not, like, totally confident that he's good outside his lab. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a really important distinction to make. Which is why when the show did the run, Barry, run speech, or in this case, the phase, Barry, phase (laughs) speech that allows Barry to tap into some power that he knew that he had deep down inside, but needed someone to tell him that it was there because that's how the Flash gets out of these situations. Um, It made it better than it when it keeps just coming from father figures. It was coming from himself, basically. And I thought that was a nice little riff on that whole trope that the show's kind of wearing a little thin, but this was a nice way to freshen that up. And the rest of the episode was really great. We'll talk about, like, the one big elephant in the room after you kind of give me your general impressions about Escape from Earth 2. Yeah, I, I really I think the writing for, for Barry 
too. Yeah. And also, as well as the performance. The performance is fantastic. But also, also yeah. the writing is, yeah. is it's the best of any of them, of yeah. any of the alts. And because, yes. th- like you say, it walks that line so well. Because to me, that is Barry Allen. Like yeah. everything he's saying, that is something that our Barry would say. It's just slightly twisted, slightly different, because this is a Barry who didn't have an angsty, like, despair-filled childhood for a while and then have some rage issues that Joe helped him work through, who wasn't around Joe who's, like, super chill and, you know, reassuring and... And also, you know, he's a cool... He seems like he'd be a cool dad until he needed to not be a cool dad, you know? Yeah. So, like, I, I, you can absolutely see that in this Barry. Yeah. Um, and, and so to have so much of that... And because the performance is also, again, it's very similar. But it's wrong. It's not wrong, but it's different. In just the, just enough and in just the right ways and with enough specificity yeah. that it really, really works. Like, we were praising Melissa Benoist for the different Kara that we got, Hank as Kara, which is yeah. a different thing because it's Hank pretending to be Kara. Yeah. But I think this is even more impressive. Yes. Because it, it's similar. It's so similar in so many ways and yet just enough off that it does feel completely distinct. So uh, all the praise for the writing and also for, for Grant Gustin there. Uh, as for the rest of the episode, I thought it was fun. Um, the, the big question mark is Jay. And as far yes. as I'm concerned, that is him. Jay is behind the mask and then there's something else going on whether it's a third j third earth or because we saw hunter zolomon as well yeah. or that that isn't actually j and it uh j looks like something else so i mean there's a lot of options but what do you how do you feel about that um i just i mean the whole i really do think it's j garrick earth 2 in the mask yeah uh in part because it's so on the nose for Barry to mention prisoners of war when he was talking about the tap code. And you remember, I mean, this is just like a quick throwaway line from episode two of this season when Jay mentioned that he fought in the war, war of the Americas. And she went, Oh, so Jay was a soldier. He's using a tap code that Barry associates with prisoners of war. Huh? Type of thing. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah. So either he's my, my fun theory is that uh, even though I don't think that this is how this is going to play out, but my fun theory is is that the Jay Garrick we've been hanging out with is actually like the Earth Three Johnny Quick, who's like the evil version of the Flash. On that, where the all the big superheroes have evil versions and all the villains have good versions of themselves in Earth Three. And my basic thinking is that zoom went and took that guy's that guy's speed but johnny quick just went oh well i'll be your toady if i get my speed back and zoom went oh well i have a plan (laughs) and so you can pose as this jay garrick and things can go kind of weird and narratively i don't know how well that works because we've had instances where jay's been talking about his past basically and i just go well that doesn't make any sense but at the same time, Jay just kind of disappeared for long stretches in the first half of the show, so maybe Zoom caught him beforehand and then locked him up. I don't know. My only thing I do know is that I need that mask to have some diegetic narrative reason for existing other than we didn't want to spoil the surprise. Because otherwise, I don't know why that mask is there other than just to withhold it. But the fact that Jay's stupid enough to go stand in front of the breach at the end of the episode just makes me think he's in cahoots with Zoom. Because otherwise, Jay's 
how he's been depicted is smart enough not to stand in front of a breach where a guy who likes to vibrate his hands through people would do something like that. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's too... Because uh, that is... He's standing far from the group. It is not right yeah. next to the group. So that is too, very a deliberate choice. So clearly yeah. he's involved somehow with yeah. that. And that was not an accident. He didn't come to help with Geomancer. That was some nap that Jay was taking. Yeah. And then there's just that weird shot of Jay looking kind of weird and vaguely sinister um, at an act-out moment before they cut to commercial. And it's just like, oh, you guys are doing this again. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know quite how I feel about them repeating the trusted ally turns out to be the bad guy mm-hmm. type of situation. But it just kind of depends on how it plays. Because, I mean, we haven't had the amount of time that we've had with Jay that we had with Harrison slash Eobard. So it'll feel a little different, but on the other hand, I'm just like, oh god, Caitlin's gonna lose two love interests in two seasons. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's not a great thing for Caitlin. No. It also could just be that, like you said, there were long stretches where we didn't see him. So yeah. I don't I, I don't know if I'd like it better if he was like replaced after the team had already gotten to know Jay, because I really liked the Jay that was introduced. Yeah, I do. I I like Jay. Period. I think yeah. Teddy Sears. A Teddy Sears has been doing a really great job, but B, it's also just like the early stuff that we got with Jay was so golden age comic writing and mentality that I just really clicked into Jay a lot, and so that's why I was always really upset when he would just kind of disappear for long stretches because they were so busy setting up Legends of Tomorrow that they didn't have time for him. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would like that to not all have been a manipulation. You know? Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see what they do with it. But yeah, I, a solid part two, I would say. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then this week, it's going to be great. I'm yeah. so excited. Okay. Note. Note to self. Yeah. Our last one for this week is The 100, which... Now, Noel, when you saw this a while back, though. So yes. did you get a chance to rewatch, or is this still not as fresh in your memory? I didn't bother to rewatch. I just watched this week's episode uh, to kind of, like, refresh myself in that way. But... Go ahead and tell me, because I didn't have a really visceral reaction to this, but after, like, watching the recap and then watching this episode, I'm pretty much in line with everyone else, though I don't think I'm quite as angry as everyone else, but go ahead and just let it rip, because I know you're ready to just... Yeah. Yeah, go for it. So I saw last week's episode of The 100 after we recorded last week, and uh, so I could... Or else I would have talked about last week. I haven't seen this week's episode yet. Okay. Um, And I had heard a lot of buzz of people angry about stuff in last week's episode uh so i and it was even like before the episode aired a number of folks in their pre-reviews yeah just like this is there's a problem coming guys yeah gird your loins and yet despite having heard what was going to happen uh and so i I was prepared for the storyline i knew what was happening with the bellamy turn uh i still was not I was still very angry when it happened. I managed, it managed, even knowing what was going to happen did not prepare me for how terribly it was executed. So we have, for those who don't watch The 100, one of the main characters has suddenly decided to side with the virulent racist uh, despite, against the grounders, despite the fact that his sister and one of, and, and her boyfriend, who is, you know, they've all saved each other's lives so many times, basically is a grounder. And there's no explanation for this. There's no time spent on it. There's like two lines of dialogue 
and then we're supposed to accept this massive character flip and betrayal. He was about to go slaughter a bunch of innocent people, um, and we're just supposed to be okay with that because logically it makes sense. Uh, Mo Ryan over at Variety did an interview with the the hundred showrunner that actually I really applaud him for being so like <laughs> she's just does not shy away from her thoughts uh, on this twist, which she she also really didn't like it. Um, And so credit to him for taking that well and responding. But for those at home listening with children in the the vicinity earmuffs, that was some fucking bullshit is what that was. Uh, It's completely out of character. It's character assassination as far as I'm concerned. I don't see how he can come back from this he should know better it doesn't make any goddamn sense we don't like pike we don't know pike sure bad things happen to pike but bad things happen to everybody so he's not written well enough and the performance isn't interesting or nuanced enough to sell this and to make me invest in him and to make me disinvest in all of the other people all of the other heroes of the show who are opposed to this including lexa who's a badass awesome person so um Basically, this is a complete misstep. I don't even understand how they could think this was all, all right. And my other thought with it is I've, I wonder I wonder if the current political climate in the U.S. where we have people running for president and in the lead of their party who say stuff like, you know, it was like basically saying that all Mexicans are rapists. Uh, so really racist bullshit. And that's somebody who's in the lead for the GOP nomination. I wonder how that is affecting the way, the, the amount of tolerance that somebody like myself has for a character who's just straight up all fill in the blanks are evil and we should just kill them all. Uh, so I think there might be a certain element of that that is adding in that maybe people didn't anticipate. But even without that element and without that like layer on top of things, I don't understand how, how somebody writes this makes this move like i don't even understand how this makes it past the room i don't understand how the room doesn't revolt at this suggestion so that i i it was worse than even i anticipated being prepared going into it that's how i feel about it yeah no i think that's totally spot on um you'll be dismayed to know that they tried to justify it this week and it rings as tinny as it's as tinny as you would expect it to even though uh the actor who plays bellamy tries his damnedest to sell it you can you can almost see him going in his head this is kind of bullshit but i'm going to try and make it work and i mean at this point the character's kind of wrecked in a way that doesn't make any sense and i don't i'm with you in that i'm not quite sure how they can have him recover in a really reasonable way because he also kind of doubles down on it at the same time this week Mm -hmm. uh so look forward to that um but the other thing is that i don't mind pike's presence and mentality and approach and his overall like desire to kill grounders is like a narrative story engine my problem with it is, is that it happens too fucking quickly mm-hmm. like he shows up at the ark and goes oh i'm gonna run for mayor and my platform is kill all the fucking grounders that i can get my hands on and it's like guys wait no there was no time for this to be set up <laughs> this just this just happened and it happened i think in part because they like you said they wanted to tackle in some way the current american political climate 
and they saw this as a way to do it and they just decided to run with it. And I applaud that idea and that impulse uh, because, like, some of the best science fiction, like, does extrapolation and looks at stuff and goes, oh, this is what we're talking about and this is what you're living with. And I think that's a really good impulse to do and I think it's a really good impulse for the 100 to explore. But set it up first. Just don't have him come in and have basically the entire community turn on grounders without so much as a so so much as like a debate or a discussion about it. It's just like, oh yeah, no, this this is happening. This is what we're going to go do, and it's just like, oh okay. And I almost think that if it had had time to do that and it had time to explore Bellamy's issues, that he would do this. It would have been acceptable, but it just happens far, 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 far too quickly. And I think that's, for me, like, the biggest problem is that this isn't a bad idea. The Bellamy stuff isn't a good idea, but maybe narratively you could have justified it if it had had time to breathe. But as it stands, it happened really, really quickly. It happened way too quickly. And that, I think, is the biggest problem with this. And I'm not sure how this is going to work. And... I'll just go ahead and tell you this week that in this week's episode, um, Pike just goes, oh yeah, we can't really afford to like have the resources to treat the grounders that Abby's got in the, in the hospital and everything. So we're going to set up a little internment camp for them. <laughs> and exactly <laughs> type of thing. So they're really driving hard this kind of their political extrapolation and using Pike to explore that idea and it's just like, again, this is a really nice idea, guys. But you maybe needed to, like, spend another four episodes before this happened and dealt with all of this in the back half of the season as opposed to front-loading this so heavily. Or, so, you know, send yeah. the people in the Ark away to go negotiate with the Grounders, and when they come back, this has happened. Yeah. You know, or something. But just don't throw Bellamy under the bus like that. That is yeah. not acceptable <laughs> so it yeah. doesn't get any less less acceptable yeah when you watch this week's episode yeah and and i mean the worst part is that the stuff with lexa is awesome it's so good yes isn't it isn't it great yeah i mean just the entire aspects of her maneuvering the tribes against one another and trying to assume control and everything is so fascinating and really, really interesting and just gets to the parts of the show that work really, really well, which is the ins and outs of the political system and how that grounder clan system works, but also how Lexa tries to make it work so that she and Clark can work and be together is just really interesting and really fascinating as well. And it's just... It's really great, and there's some good stuff in that aspect in this week's episode that I, I think will kind of kept the F- this week's episode really afloat um, in a lot of ways, because needless to say, Lexa is not happy when she comes and sees a bunch of dead grounders. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, what wins your week in reality and genre this week? Um, I'm going to go with The Flash this week. Um, so, so solid episode, um, and just... Really great performance from Grant Gustin. And like like we discussed, just some really solid writing to keep that character exactly the same, but just different enough. Yeah, and I'm going to give it to Gravity Falls. Just such a great finale. Really happy to have 
have caught up with that show in the past few years. Uh, but now we'll take a break and come back with our weekend drama. Well, hello there. My, it's been a long, long time. How am I doing? Oh, I guess that I'm doing fine. It's been so long now. And it seems that it was only yesterday. Gee, ain't it funny how time slips away. Before we start this week in drama, a quick note about the sound quality this week. We're having some recording creativity. So I apologize for the change in sound quality here. Hopefully it's not too bad. Hopefully it doesn't sound too loud to you guys. But uh, this should not be an issue next week. We appreciate your patience. But this week in drama, we're going to be talking about Better Call Saul premiere Switch, the London Spy finale, and then a little American crime story, People vs. O.J. Simpson, The Dream Team, Limitless Undercover, and American Crime uh, Season 2, Episode 7. First up is Better Call Saul, which has premiere Switch. Now, I'm a bigger fan of the show than you are, Noel. What did you think of the premiere? Um, it was fine, which I think is about the reaction you'd expect from me. Um, because I think that this, at this point, Better Call Saul has realized that it's at its best when it's not trying to do Breaking Bad. And that's for the best. And, um, so even though stylistically it still feels very Breaking Bad, um, but just not doing that kind of heavy focus on like a fall from grace, basically, since we know how this basically works is that Jimmy becomes Saul, Saul becomes whatever the name of his, um, Cinnabon manager guy is, but... So, no, this episode was fine. Um, the most interesting thing was the whole con, which was the central piece of the episode, was um, Jimmy uh, was um, Jimmy and Kim conning uh, Ken, the stockbroker, who actually appeared in Breaking Bad. The same character? <laughs> yeah, it's the same character. Kyle Bruenheimer. It's the same character. Ken wins. Appears in both. <laughs> So, like, he comes back and he blows he blows up the car and everything and um, in Breaking Bad. And it's the same character just in the, in the past. Um, but no, so it's fun watching them, like, bond and realize that... The, and it, the thing that's really nice about it is, is that it's Saul showing who... Saul, Jimmy, whatever. Showing who he thinks he is to Kim. And he's, like, exposing himself, basically. And making himself emotionally available to her in this way. And I think that's really kind of a big deal for Jimmy. And and it's really interesting. And I thought that was I thought that was really nice. But at the same time it's just like I'm not like deeply invested in this show. So the fact that it's like kind of like a one night type of thing that works for him but 
not necessarily for her, which drives him to take that job with um, Ed Begley Jr.'s firm that looks like a hotel room. Um, well, it looks like a hotel lodge resort type of thing as opposed to a law firm, but whatever. Um, so yeah, it just, it was, it was, it was fine. I mean, I'm not like super warm on Better Call Saul. So yeah, it it was, it was exactly what Better Call Saul is. And I enjoyed it in so much as I enjoy any episode of Better Call Saul, but I'm still just like, nah, this is fine. This is good, but it's not exactly like tickling my fancy. Um, so how did you feel about this episode? Oh, I, I love this show so much. Yeah. <laughs> Immediately, I was very glad to be back in this world. I was so happy that they went back to the Cinnabon at yeah. the start of the season. And again, having that relationship with the visuals and the music and uh, you know the, the time it takes, that this show takes, that, that again, is very similar to the approach uh, in, in Breaking Bad, is something I really appreciate and that so few people do, so few shows do um, so. I, I just much more in in step. I think with this show, more, much more interested in Jimmy and the rest of this world. Then it sounds like like you are Nolan. Fair enough. Different. Uh, not every show is for every person. Um, but I had a lot of fun with it, and I'm glad that they were giving Kim more to do here. I yes, think she, it was which, a real yeah. strength of the first season, and it's great to see them recognize that. Hopefully, we'll get more moving forward. But I think yeah, having that difference between the Jimmy she sees and the Jimmy he sees is very important and very interesting yeah. and a good thread for them to pick up with. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I'm looking forward to where the season will take us. Yeah. And I don't want to sound like I hate the show or anything. It's just, I'm kind I appreciate the show. And I, unlike with some other shows where I can kind of appreciate what they're doing, I can, and just, but still kind of wonder why people like it. I understand why people like it. Not even enjoy like it from like a distance sort of thing in a lot of ways. So like when he's trapped in that garbage room and he looks at the press press emergency bar basically to get out of there and he almost presses it but then he goes, "Well, how much attention do I really want to draw from the police?" And it's just kind of a gut-wrenching moment because he's just like and it's a perfect metaphor for where he is, basically. I mean, it's a literalization of his life right now is that he's trapped, but he can't get out, and he wants to get out, but he can't. And so that kind of stuff I can really key on and really appreciate, and I don't feel like I'm getting head over head by it because the show's so well made, and it's generally pretty subtle about not hitting you over the head. It, it's much more of a velvet hammer than an actual hammer, which I will always take the velvet hammer. <laughs> just so, take yeah. that just take that quote out separate <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i again i see where you're coming from but i'm just i guess i'm just much more on the show's wavelength on this one and sure but like i am with london spy as well or yeah. at least have been uh we had the finale this week and I, again i'm going to try to keep it quick here but i really liked it i thought it was interesting to set up a season two i didn't necessarily anticipate a season two um, is there a season two i don't know they could okay. end it here but yeah it feels like an odd note to end on if they are, but I guess it's, if they do end it, it's nice to end on a hopeful note. But I, again, Ben Wishaw, fantastic. Seeing him react and respond to Scotty, uh, bringing his parents in, which I did not anticipate um, in that episode, uh, as well as stacking the odds even higher against him. Um, all of this worked for me, but again, like we talked about last week, I'm much more invested in the spy side of things than you are. So did any part of this really work for you or was it more just sort of like fair enough finishing things up? 
yeah, that's pretty much how I felt about it was, okay, this is how you guys are going to wrap this up. That's fine. And that's, I mean, I think this was my least favorite episode of the entire show. Yeah, I just, I didn't key in on any of it. The reveal about his par- uh, Alex's parentage didn't really do anything for me in any way, shape, or form. So I was basically just like, okay, this was a nice wrap-up, I guess. All right, uh, on to the next thing is basically how I felt about it. Well, since we are short for time this week, I guess that's how we're going to wrap it up. Um, but again... Again, I liked it more than you did, but I, I was yeah. very glad to have spent the time. Yeah. Um, but I know I was also very glad to spend the time this week with American Crime Story, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, The Dream Team, and how fun is Nathan Lane as F. Lee Bailey? I never would have guessed that casting, but it's so good. He's super fun. Like, the most fun? <laughs> the most fun of all the funs? The most fun of all the funs. I mean, Evan Handler as um, Dershowitz is pretty fun as well. But, yeah, no, Nathan Lane's clearly having a ball as F. Lee Bailey. And, yeah, no, this was a really, this felt like a really kind of transitional episode as we shift from the crime procedure, the crime part to the trial part and get that set up. And so I still really enjoyed this episode. It just wasn't as, like, big and powerful as the first two episodes were, which is fine because those two episodes are both really great but also kind of exhausting in their, oh, wow, this is really intense sort of way. Um, how did you feel about the Kardashian cold open? Because this seemed like really divisive for a lot of people and a little too much and a little too on the nose. How did you feel about it? I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was a bit on the nose. Like just the the sentence, we are Kardashians was like too much. But on the whole, I really don't have a problem with the Kardashians. Like cutting to the Kardashians going, Kardashian, whatever, like that, I was totally fine with that. I don't see why everybody's freaking out. Then again, I also have only glancing familiarity with the Kardashians. So to right. me, they're like, I know that they're a thing, but I do not follow them. I do not, you know, know what they're doing or what's happening in their lives. So I, I can sort of approach that part of the show as more a fictional thing and less a, these are real people thing. Uh-huh. So for me, it's more shading and kind of filling out Robert yeah. than anything else. How do you feel about it? I really liked it. I mean, I thought it was kind of like, again, I'm operating in that kind of vein of this is very much a melodrama and heavy handedness kind of comes with that genre. So the fact that they're leaning in really heavy on the Kardashians as like kids responding to fame and this sort of thing, I think is makes sense. And again, it feeds into the show's interest in exploring what celebrity means. And I think that's why I'm okay with it is that even though, again, yeah, it is on the nose, but I think it's very much in keeping with what the show was wanting to think through and wanting us to think through as well. And yeah, so I was perfectly fine with it. And like you said, I think it's really good shading for Robert to see how he's dealing with all these different aspects of his life as this case and trial moves forward. And I think that's really interesting as well. So I was way more okay with it than a lot of people were because I saw tweets about it and I'm just like, wait what did we see the same thing i kind of loved that i thought that was really interesting uh but yeah so no i i enjoyed that aspect of it and um i thought maybe that it would have gotten bleeped out in the um screener uh in the actual airing of the episode but marsha's motherfucker made it to air yeah which was which was interesting but also a nice reminder that the fcc does not have any jurisdiction over cable which i think people sometimes forget Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, the cable stuff is all pretty much self-imposed. Yeah. Yeah. 
So yeah. So so like you said, this one may be less um, event worthy than the yeah. first two, but I think that was like you said. I think it was a good change of pace, and uh, we got we have more good things coming ahead. So I'm not going to say anything else. Did you have any other thoughts about this one? No, just, I mean, keep watching the show, guys. I mean, it's really, really good still. Well, our next show is a show we both love and finally is getting coverage at the AV Club. I hope other places are covering it, too, because I want more people to be watching it. And I know, I'm pretty sure you do, too. That's Limitless. We had Undercover! Now, when we saw that this title was coming up as an upcoming episode, at least, I don't know about you, but I certainly had high hopes based on Headquarters. Uh, sure. I think I think for the most part it paid off. I had a lot of fun with this episode uh, and the structure of it, the the whimsy of it. I thought it on the whole worked. How did you feel about this one? Was it a worthy successor to Headquarters? Uh, yeah, no. I thought this was a lot of fun. I think part of the reason why it has the exclamation mark and uh, as like a spiritual sequel to Headquarters is that this is another key spy thing that Brian gets to do. Spies have a headquarters and they go undercover. And, I mean, they kind of acknowledge that with his whole... The most Brian knows about going undercover is what he knows from movies. And so I think that that's why this worked as well as it did, was that it kind of riffed on the ideas of going undercover. The perks of going undercover is that the crime lord gives you a hot lady to spend the night with who just wants to watch reality television and then talk about it to the FBI later during the interview process. And so, I mean, that kind of stuff, again... Limitless just demonstrates that it loves to zig and zag and be fun and still manage in this episode in particular, make sure that it's like darker edges are still really, really menacing because the whole thing about um, Colin Solomon's character uh, trying to recruit Jennifer Carpenter's character into the um, into working for Moira so that they can keep a better eye on her sort of thing and make her basically stop asking questions and just, I mean, the menace and the way that their tentacles are just, like, steadily creeping in, I think is just really, really great. So they can do fun episodes, but they keep the menace and the the darker aspects of the show just kind of slowly creeping in ever deeper into the show. And I think that's just great. And it's why Limitless is just so, so very good. And even just the way it was shot, having that more of that dark green filter and the edges, yeah. darker edges around it, very menacing and continues the narrative language established already in the show. And it has, especially NZT being the bright, cheerful yellow, whereas, you know, what we see this week with, with uh, Colin Salmon and uh, is Sands, is his name Sands? Do I have that wrong? Anyways. What I we think see, it is Sands, yeah. Yeah, what we see with Sands, um, again, the menace of it and her read of him as yes, well is really great like that's one of the bad things about these um consultant type of episodes where the cops end up kind of coming off incompetent and this is a really good reminder that she's very good at her job and she reads people and she reads bad guys really easily and i think that's really great and it also makes it make sure that sans isn't as all-powerful and cool as he's coming off in brian's head which is a nice corrective and a nice complication and wrinkle. Yeah. Do you have any final thoughts on this episode or any hopes for a future exclamation point? Um, well, we do need a car chase. Hmm, that's true. Yeah, at the same time, this is a show that generally kind of eschews heavy action, which is really part of the reason why I love this show. <laughs> so, I don't know. I'll have to think about that. Yeah. Well, while you're thinking about that, let's move on to our last show of the week in TV, and that's American Crime, season two, episode seven. And oh man, we got some we got some uh, hard stuff this week. 
God, really, really hard stuff. Like, I mean, I talked about, like, being kind of, like, poignant sad with Gravity Falls, but this was just, like, intensely... I had, like, tears and concern. I was a mess of anxiety, basically, after I watched this episode. And, yeah, oh, gosh. I'm I'm getting tense and stressed out just thinking about this episode. And that's how really great it was. It was really, really damn good. And, and they gave us answers that I didn't anticipate. Yep, Eric straight up raped him. Yeah. As he, he confesses in this episode. And then gets attacked himself. And then, was that Wes that Taylor shot? Yes, it was Wes. Yeah, and he gets shot while threatening to kill him. So they just, they keep making things more difficult and more um, (laughs) canadi. And, uh, man, the performances from everyone in the, but it's, it's the writing, it's the performances, it's the direction, it's the editing, it's all coming together in such a powerful way. Uh, but if, right now, if I have to single out one thing, I'm just going to go with the writing of it. I love the time they spend in this episode that they give to these different storylines. Um, I'm, I'm starting to be more on board with this other high school issues. Um, yeah. I, I think it's starting to work better. Um, and I think part of that is because it's getting less time. But um, yeah, they only have three episodes left. Yeah, oh man, if they're going out, they're going out strong. If 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 the show doesn't get renewed since this is Polly's baby, like you're saying, um, then they're going out on a really high note. Because at least from what we've seen so far, this is a knockout season of television. Yeah, I I mean we're talking about like the direction and the aesthetics and everything. I mean we've mentioned a little bit like how the show because it's on ABC it has to like mutes out certain words or like cuts to black for certain words so we can't even see characters like mouth them basically and i like how the show kind of riffed on that by having the gun shot basically be reduced to like an almost an audible click so like this is also obscenity basically is what the show's saying and it's such a big powerful statement for the show to make that it's basically saying well if we can't say shit we shouldn't this is also a vulgarity and obscenity that we're living with right now constantly far too commonly we're living with people getting shot at schools and this sort of thing and we're not doing anything about it and i think that's just a really powerful really subtle message for the show to make in a way that acknowledges that they've turned their network mandated aesthetic choices into something meaningful within their narrative and i think that's a really powerful thing for the show to do and i just think the rest of the episode is just still just deeply powerful like yeah no i think we all thought taylor was gonna go shoot himself mm-hmm. <laughs> and then he just didn't and then decided to go and kill people at uh, Leland instead. And it's just, it keeps zigging and zagging in really interesting ways that just feel so powerful and so true to these characters. And in a way that doesn't feel heavy-handed or soapboxy. Um, again, like which was a common criticism of last season. And I think this season has just went... Oh, you guys had a problem with that. Okay, let's make it about this instead and see how you feel about it. And it's just like, oh, right, okay, yeah. Oh, ah, all of the emotions and that sort of stuff. And yeah, no, this was just a really, really great episode. And it 
I felt really validated in championing the show as much as you and I have been doing. And like Seppenwall just went, oh yeah, I was wrong. This is actually a really great show. (laughs) (laughs) Forget what I said at the beginning of this season and last season. This season's really great and I was an idiot. And it's just like, yeah, Alan, a little bit. Just a little bit. But welcome to the party. Better late than never. (laughs) Glad to have you on board. Absolutely. Um, it's hard for me to think of more to say without just repeating praise for for the entire cast, but they deserve it. Yeah. Lily Taylor at the end? Are you kidding me? Oh God, don't. Oh, I can't, I can't discuss Lily Taylor at the end. Yeah. Because I'm like crying like right now. Yeah. Because it's it's just so good. Well, and also just looking at parenting as well, which is not the main theme or topic but it's all over the season. And certainly yeah. here, her first response is not yell at everybody else for my kid getting into trouble the way that that is for Kevin's parents. Yeah. Her first response is call the cops and turn my son in. You know, like that's what is best for him. That's what he needs to do. I mean, just, yeah, so powerful. And that's not even talking about the, you know, the, the center of, the, of all this. Um, yeah. Okay. Hopes for the last three episodes. Um, gosh. I, 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 like you, I want to see the public high school stuff kind of shift into focus a little bit more. But I've also just kind of decided maybe that this is just going to be window dressing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's maybe I'm going to be okay with it because the rest of this is so, so, so good. Um, but my deep hope is that there's a happy ending, but there can't, I be. don't, there can't be a happy ending. And I mean, if there were a happy ending, it would feel like a cheat, but I want one, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it, I, I, I don't think that there is one anywhere on the horizon. Uh, yeah, I think the only other big hope, and you mentioned this last week, is that um, the football, the football, the basketball coach really shifts into focus. Though I liked what was happening here, and the hints of what he might be up to. Mm-hmm. But so I forgot that they until this week that they only have three episodes left. So what are you hoping for? Um, I'm hoping for, well, basically whatever they want to give me, because I trust these people <laughs> implicitly at this point. Um, I'm hoping for more f- with the, or I, I just am looking forward to, I guess, whatever is coming with the person who's calling Taylor's mom. Yes. Uh, who we spent a little more time with in the last couple episodes. And uh, I think we're going to get more Dan, which is good. I think good. we're going to get, um, I'm looking forward to what, how Eric is going to respond to his his attack in this episode what that triggers in him should be interesting <laughs> it's just like it's a terrible thing but i'm excited to see the aftermath of attempted rape yay i feel like a terrible person for saying that uh but the way the show has handled these issues so far i have such faith in the in the writers and directors and and everybody involved that i just whatever they want to show i am here to watch yeah, and I think that's that is the best response. Yeah. Well, what wins your weekend drama? Uh, is 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 there another choice? <laughs> Can we just say American Crime at the same American time? American Crime. One, two, three. American, American crime. crime. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
and again, and we really like these other, I mean, I really like these other episodes. You liked some of them, and we both really like Limitless. But yeah, American yeah. Crime. Definitely American Crime. Well, now a few show notes. You can find a post-up for this episode at theteleverse.org, the website for the for the podcast. You can also email theteleverse at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you guys. You can find us in iTunes where we have an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed. Note to our subscribers. There have been some issues with new episodes being like that your your feed being pinged with the fact that new episodes are there. So uh, if an episode is not showing up by Sunday morning at the latest, it is probably in iTunes, but your feed is not uh, finding it. So it's you have to search in iTunes. You may you may have to unsubscribe and resubscribe. I'm not sure exactly what's going on with that, uh, but when I tweet it out. That means the episode is live. It should be in iTunes. If it's not, please do reach out. Please let me know. We've had feed problems in the past. And the only way I know that there's something wrong is if you guys tell me. So thank you very much to the people who are helping me out with this on Twitter and kind of keeping me informed about what was going on for them in iTunes. And I was hearing different things from different people. Um, so I apologize for any confusion or frustration on that. Uh, we hopefully will have no future issues, but that is something we are currently trying to figure out right now. You can also, of course, uh, find both of us. You can find us on Facebook where you can uh, like the page, start up a conversation. And we are both on Twitter. I am at the Televerse and Noel, you are? At Noel RK. And of course, Noel covers the Arrowverse over at TV.com. I'll have uh, some new writing up at the AV Club next week, um, but you can also find my reviews of much of the season of Man Seeking Woman and uh, and before it hears reborn, oh, oh, the excitement over at the AV Club. Um, but now we're going to take a break and come back with Josh Spiegel of Masterpiece Cinema and Movie Mezzanine to talk about Key and Peel. So we'll be right back after this. Because you're my wife and you love the theater and uh, it's your birthday. <laughs> Great. Un un unfortunately, the, um, the orchestra is already filled up, but they do have seats that are still left in the dress circle. So if you want to, um, need to get them theater tickets right now, I'm going to do it right now. What's up, dog? I'm about five minutes away. Yeah. Okay, yeah, cool. No, they're all yeah. good singers. they all good singers. Yeah, son. Mm -hmm. Nah, man, I'm about, I'm telling you, man, I'm about to cross the street, Nah, they man. get that one dude in it that you love, man. He going to be in it. Yeah. yeah come on, Whatever. man. You know I'm almost oh, there, all right? Right now, I'm going to pick your ass up at 630 cool. then. Cool. All right. Yeah, 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 yeah. The parking is, uh, the parking's free. Got that oh my lot. God, Christian! I almost totally just got mugged right now. <laughs> crazy, crazy, does, does, does this crazy, crazy makeup for just just like you? You jamming all the first, first one plan, but you won't, back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. And this week at the DVD shelf, it is a belated return, but a much appreciated return from the, the managing editor of Movie Mezzanine, as well as one of the hosts of and creators of Masterpiece Cinema. Welcome back to the podcast, Mr. Josh Beagle. Hi. How you doing? <laughs> it's, it's a new landscape Good. for you here. Yes. It's very strange. It's, it's, it's odd, but I'm getting used to it. Well, we're very well, glad to have you with us. Yes? Well, all I was going to say is that the last time I talked to Josh, we talked about planes. So we're not talking about planes again, right? No. Uh, well, wait a second. Now, I, I think there there must be at least one extended sketch from Key and Peele that's like a parody of the Cars universe, right? Well, if Would, we're... If we're you say uh, planes, I just immediately go to Terry's because we're talking Key and Peele today, guys. <laughs> and it's going to be... A lot of fun. I feel like the Terry sketch, I'm not a huge fan of it compared to everybody else who seems to love it, but I feel like that sketch is just by itself 
so much better than the film Planes. I say that without having seen it, which I know is, uh, is. heathenous, but I, I still do. Uh, so, Key and Peele... I can confirm that your assumption is correct, <laughs> So can I, sadly. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I want to go into digression about Planes versus El Enchanted, but that's for another time. That was the last one I was on Masterpiece for. Uh, Ella Enchanted is also better than Planes. I'm going to confirm that for you, too. Okay, good. Well, you know, I feel that that casting would have to be. But let's get back into Key and Peele. Uh, Josh, what made you want to talk about the show? Well, part of it, you know, you you have done so many episodes on so many great shows that I love. So, unfortunately, you've covered some of the ones that I would have discussed. Uh, But the other reason was... Uh, luckily enough, I I had been binge watching Key and Peele uh, via Hulu. I had, for reasons that I don't even remember now, I had not seen the final season at all before. So I got to watch that for the first time. Now I'd watched all of the first four seasons when they aired on Comedy Central, or I think via Hulu, because by the time the fourth season aired, I'd already cut the cable cord. But uh, I finally got a chance to watch the final season, and then I got your email, and I realized, hey. I literally just finished watching a show that would fit perfectly with this, and luckily it was available. So absolutely, that was primarily it. good timing. <laughs> well, I'll take it because it means that I got to rewatch a bunch of Key and Peele, which was delightful. Uh, Noel, I've talked quite a, a, to great extent on the podcast about my my love of Key and Peele. What what is your relationship with the show? Did you start watching it right when it you know came out, or did you catch up with it later? Um, I caught up with it later. Um, I think I started watching it in season... I started watching it in season three because that that's the sketch with... That's the episode with the uh, Les Mis mm-hmm. episode. The sketch, which is just so, so funny. I love that sketch. Um, but yeah, no. So I started watching in season three and then I kind of like circled through some of seasons one and two but also it was one of those shows where i didn't watch it consistently when it was first on but i would watch the sketches that would get put on youtube so i knew what the show was about and i think that was one of the reasons why i never like actually sat down to watch the show until season three it was just like oh i'll just watch the best ones best bits of the episode on youtube and you know i'm done i I was fully embracing my status as a millennial at that point (laughs) I was just like, I'm not going to watch this TV show when you tell me to. I'm going to watch it on YouTube and without the ads. Take that, Comedy Central. I think your your millennial joking aside, that is a big reason why the show was ever so successful. Not just yeah, because no, it's sketch totally show, was. but because you can highlight, you know, Luther. You can yes. highlight the valets or the aerobics. Uh, or Mr. Garvey, right. Or, yeah. Yes, the substitute teacher, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah it, it's it's ideal for that kind of viral video yeah you know absolutely well and because the you know the show takes advantage of that in a really smart way because they know that people can just search on youtube and find these these characters and just keep revisiting them uh, keep revisiting them if they so choose so they don't feel the need to bring them back every week which i think is really significant and a big part of why some of their most successful characters over the course of five seasons at least as far as i'm concerned didn't get played out in a way that you know i think of the SNL I was watching as a kid, and if I ever saw another superstar or uh, cheerleader <laughs> sketch, I would just have to take <laughs> a grot to my neck uh, <laughs> because no one needs another 
you know, episode or another sketch with those characters. And, and being so aware of how the show was viewed and um, certainly by the time they get to season three, season four, uh, really in- engaging with the YouTube of it, of it all. And Comedy Central also embracing that in their approach, I think uh, really allowed them to feel comfortable with that. That's my guess, at least. I don't know what the writer's room was actually like, but that stands out to me. I will say regarding repeating characters, watching it this time, there was only one repeating sketch that I found myself liking less and less. And that was, I believe, the the, the character that Key plays is Andre and the character that Peel plays is Megan. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Megan sketch that's is really the, hit or miss. The yeah. problem is they had their best one. I, if it wasn't the first one, it was like the second one, the one that ends with culminating with them crawling through the desert and then... Andre realizing, oh, we're like the 10th couple that's done this and we're going to die here. That's a great end of the sketch. But then as the seasons went on, you know, there's the sketch where we're finally going to break up. And yet he she talks him into not breaking up or, you know, she manipulates him. She guilts him. That stuff, you know, you know, you know, the characters by then. And the, the sketch assumes, you know, those characters that it would matter that they might actually break up. So I, I kind of got tired of that. But but I was. Pleasantly surprised at how the other ones, the substitute teacher one, I feel like I remember in the middle of season three, there was a possibility of there being a movie about Mr. Garvey, but that hasn't materialized. And I'm kind of glad because they used him a few times and that works really well. Yeah, I agree. I think the only like recurring one that never really worn out as welcome was Luther, but that was because the timeliness and the, how it played off Obama's image was made it work. And plus after Luther actually showed up at the White House press correspondence dinner, there was no reason for Luther to ever appear in ever anything ever again. <laughs> well, it doesn't only appear; he appears once in the last season with the yeah. uh, the Clinton gag, right? Which was with Savannah, yes. which was delightful. <laughs> yeah, which is delightful, right? But it's not so much about expressing Obama at that point. I mean, they're riffing at riffing really well on something at that point. So well, and because they. Or in that case, they're, they're, they start out with Luther, which is, you know, in the first season, which works so well. I and mean, that's in the pilot, right? Um, I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, or it's, like, super early because that is like, that's, like, my first memory of that show is here's Luther, the ang- anger translator. Yeah. Well, it clearly spoke to something. It touched, a, you know, a nerve in the yeah. viewing uh, viewing uh, public or the audience. Uh, it, it was very successful immediately. But then because it was directly connected to what was going on and when the show was on the air, they could keep responding to different things. Yes. So they could respond to the, the, the re-election. They could respond to these other things that were happening and have an element of timeliness that allowed them to have something slightly different to say. And I think that makes a, a big difference when you're looking at uh, that character. And that's also why when they come back in the last season, it's then passing the torch on to Hillary and Savannah. Uh, and, right. You know, and I think that makes a, a big, a big difference. So they don't have anything new to say about Obama. So they don't, you know, have Luther come back. Instead, they talk about Hillary Clinton and also the way that they engage with in the second season with the the president's reaction to Luther. Yes. I think there's a good like a level of um, flexibility there back and forth that I think really works. And you get to see them have this idea and then go, oh, this touched our nerve and we met the president and then kind of take it from there and respond back and forth a little bit with that. And I think that, you know, it works really well and helps keep keep it fresh in a way that you know, other of their recurring characters, if they had brought them back as frequently as they did Luther, I think wouldn't have been able to sustain. 
and even there, Obama is a recurring type of character with Sans Luther, and their presentation of Obama is always just really interesting. It's one of the most interesting things about the show for me is how they present Obama as this kind of master of jujitsu in a lot of ways, uh, political and verbal jujitsu. And just like, I always go back to that sketch where he sits down with all the Republicans and basically makes them cut off their tongues and tape their mouths shut because he's just like, oh, I'm just going to do your platform and then you're going to disagree with it out of habit. And they just get more and more angry and Paul, Paul F. Tompkins is in that bit and he's just like putting scotch tape around his mouth so he doesn't disagree with something he deeply believes. And it's just, it's they've always presented him as this badass basically and it was always really interesting to see that play out because it felt like a kind of a push against the perception of obama as weak or ineffectual and this sort of thing and it was always really interesting to see how they presented him and i always really enjoyed that aspect of the show but they never really like pushed it too hard either which was nice and i think another sketch that kind of kind of piggybacks off that into a wider, I'm going to go wider here than, than just yeah. about Obama. You know, one of the most common threads in the show is about race and about yeah. the, the notion of balancing blackness and whiteness because both Key and Peel are mixed race. And that one yeah. sketch with Obama shaking hands with people oh, or you know, giving them a, a little bit of a dap or something else, depending on their race, that that is a, a really effective piece about just, how you balance your own identity depending yeah. on who you're talking to. And again, so many of the sketches on the show, even all the way down to the very last one that they do in the final episode, the, the Negro town bit with, oh. by the way, I was, since I, I'd heard about that sketch, I mm-hmm. did not know that of all people to play the cop, they got Nick Searcy from justified and also from being a horrible racist on Twitter, yeah. which was real weird to see him in that sketch. Which also, it kind of made that that last line that he has, the, oh yeah, that's where you're going. That really hits hard in an unexpected way. But like all of these sketches about race and identity that manage to talk about these very heady topics that can be automatically controversial just by existing, but doing it in a way that never feels safe, but is also extraordinarily funny, even to a, a trio of white people such as us. Yeah, right. They're very deeply invested in exploring what code switching means. And... Yeah. It's really fascinating to watch that because I rewatched just a handful of episodes to prep for this. And there's the uh, bit in, I want to say it's a season one episode where he's out to dinner with a white woman. And the way, yes, yeah. Right. And it's just like, I need a black moment and a white moment. And he doesn't know which one to do by the end. And he's just bouncing back and forth between both of them. And it's just, it really gets to the schizophrenia of it all for want of a better phrase. And it's just... It's so good, and I mean, the entire the entire idea of the show is about that kind of idea of code switching, and well, for a lot of its sketches, about code switching, because, I mean, just the first episode has that bit where they're talking on the phone. Yes, the very first sketch, yes. Yeah, absolutely. the very first sketch is about it, and so it's always really fascinating. Um, Josh and I have been monopolizing the conversation, Kate, I'm sorry. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you know what, really... Going back and, and watching some episodes uh, again and trying, I was what I did is I just got the DVDs and pulled up uh, Hulu for the other seasons that aren't on DVD yet, uh, which I think is is that just five or is that four and five? I my library could have just been out of four. I don't know, but I, I had the, 
I had the first three on DVD. I would just put a disc in and then pick a random episode. Probably watch the yeah. premiere. They tend to be stronger because they yeah. you know, start the season really strong. Um, and then put a random episode in. And so I could just like have a little grin on my face uh, if Luther popped up or some of these other you know, characters because I didn't, I didn't know what I was going to be getting. Um, but what always struck me as the most successful sketches were the ones that felt more personal and, yeah. and felt more... Uh, confessional maybe the ones that that spoke to uh or felt like they spoke to something a discussion about identity or about society or about uh expectations even if it's just something like the east west bowl <laughs> and <laughs> that is just pure ridiculous silliness that is all that Which is i think was one of the name of the players was ridiculous silliness something like that <laughs> but it also if you want to be like me and overanalyze stuff it's also them looking at representations of yes of blackness uh, and uh, and just what we expect and how we see our, our sports heroes. Um, so I, I, I love that it's, it's both things while mostly just being very silly, but I think they're, they, they're interested in a thing like in, in a bit like this. They're the first people to do a bit like this. You'd think it touches such a, a nerve. It's so uh, effective because it's something I'm sure all of us have sat in, been like really that's their name um but nobody else had thought to do it before and i think that's because of where the interests of the writers at key and peel are right and i think the other thing to like pivot off what you just said about representations of blackness is that one of the big successes of the show and i kind of knew it in like the back of my mind but rewatching some of the earlier episodes especially with the original theme song the mm-hmm. original opening which is i i kind of forgot how good that opening was compared to the uh, true detective-esque opening that we ended up getting um, was that um, sorry is that the show ends up through its myriad of like pop culture and genre thing which the show does really well and it adopts the aesthetics of whatever it wants to be because the show's really we should talk about the show's aesthetics in a little while but that they were able to put themselves in roles and in situations that you often culture doesn't allow black people to be in. So they get to be really big action heroes. They get to be the leads in romantic comedies where those things tend to be really niche-oriented and only target certain audiences. But this is on basic cable, so you're still getting like a smaller audience. But this is something a lot of people were watching. And representationally, this becomes a really important signifier, I think. And that's why I like that cold opening so much, is that they go from people who, not the cold open, the intro, they go from people watching television to people being arrested to being doctors to being action heroes. And I just think that's really interesting that they were able to do a lot of really interesting stuff where they put themselves in situations that popular culture often denies them and they joke about that a lot where they're just like we we're not threatening enough to be like the action hero or anything we always got cast as the best black friend for the other three white guys mm-hmm. right and, and you know it's funny uh, i i do like that intro uh i think i'd forgotten about the shift from the reggie watts themed intro to the true detective one and talk about lack of timeliness i know that that show's only been on the air for a couple of years true detective but boy that intro that like i I did not like the the older the, the newer intro rather. I, it felt weird. Although on the flip side, I didn't really love all the interacting with the audience bits. Yeah, those were always seasons. really rough. 
Those yeah. were awkward because it's like, yeah, you know, kind of like Chappelle's show did back in the early 2000s. And uh, I, I, since I had not seen season five, I didn't realize that they were going to make it a punchline at the very, very end, tying back to a first, I think, a first episode sketch. Yeah, it's the first you know, episode. They, using the word bitch and making sure that their wives can't hear them. And the idea that that's been the whole point, that was a, a fun twist. And I like the interaction the two of them have in the car, but yeah, yeah, that, that, that cold open, the, the intro rather is weird. I'm going to jump in uh, because first of all, I, I totally agree with you guys. The first intro I like way better than the second intro, though. I will say when I watched the season four premiere, that was when we were still in like mid true detective season one kind of oh, stuff sure. yeah. that it yeah. was hilarious and amazing. But when it came back for season five and they still had that intro, I was very disappointed. Uh, not well, they lie. were filmed back to back, which I think was the issue there is that four and five, I think were filmed like back to back. Okay. It makes sense then. Yeah. Uh, but it's still underwhelmed. I'm going to be yeah. honest, but I actually really prefer the audience uh, things the, them with the audience over them in the car because Why? I feel like uh, <laughs> because well, I want to know why. What, well, because to me, I, most of the time, I thought it was funnier, and I also thought it was less staged. They they were more relaxed, and I know that the from listening to the writers po- panel podcast with Ben Blacker, uh, that the some of the writers, I think all the writers, but at least some of the writers from from Key and Peele did an episode like years ago that I recently listened to. So they hated those. They hated writing them. They hated recording them. It was super awkward for them. Um, and I think also the writers were not big fans. So Key and Peele didn't like it, but also the writers were not big on it. But for me, when they were in the car, I just never believed that they were actually having an impromptu conversation. But they never really were, were they? I mean... It, feel, it just felt way too scripted for what was supposed to be them having a conversation in the car, whereas when they're hosts, there's already that clearly they're hosting a show, there's this constructed element to it, so it felt less false to me. Yeah, I think it's... To, to me, it's just kind of like a tomato-tomato situation because they're both fairly faux impromptu, but I, I don't know, there's some of the staginess of the earlier intro that didn't really work for me. Um, but... I wanted to bring something up that Noah mentioned before, the the visual aesthetic of the show. The biggest reason why this show still works so well, and I say still works so well as if it has been off the air for years or something, which I know isn't true. Peter Atencio, who directed, I think, every episode. Every episode. Yeah. Incredibly gifted. Like, you know, one of the things that at least my side of Twitter was excited about earlier in the year was when they had the trailer for Keanu, the new film that both of them are in. (laughs) It's the same director. Peter Atencio, and so I'm automatically like, yes, I'm. I mean, the two of them by themselves, I'm interested, but with him directing, you get the sense that he has such a finely tuned sense of what certain stories, what we expect them to look like. You know, through each of these episodes, there's only what fifty something episodes of the show, but they go through all sorts of genres from romantic comedy to horror to science fiction. You know, to one of my favorite sketches is the aerobics meltdown thing, which switches yes. it not only switches aspect ratios but it switches types because it's you know set in the 80s or something so the beginning of it is this grainy 80s style videotape and then it shifts to widescreen when you realize what's actually going on behind the scenes and and he does it so seamlessly from sketch to sketch and within sketches yeah. that it's it's unheard of and unseen i think in pretty much any other sketch show whether it was on comedy central or elsewhere that's so remarkable, and it raises the bar so high. Yeah, you took the words out of my mouth. I, that was going to be the next thing. Like, we got to give a lot of praise to Peter Atencio because he's really, really good. And and to, to you know think about the budget that 
a Comedy Central show must have. And listeners, if you don't know, it's not a lot. Um, <laughs> this show looks really, really good. And and yeah. to switch aesthetics, like you're saying, mid-sketch, but even just, you know, thinking of, of like the season, I think it's the season two premiere, has that <laughs> hilarious, awesome opening bit with the two gangsters who then keep freaking out for different reasons. And first the guy trips, and then there's the pigeon in his face, and then the piano comes through. Uh, and knocks the other one over, and it's just hilarious. Scored to uh, to opera. Uh, the the exact aria is escaping me at the moment. Um, oh, it's it's La Brindisi from um, Boheme, I believe. Uh, it, it's to to go. It's super slick John Woo kind of uh, with all this you know ridiculous comedy in it. And then uh, in the same episode, you get a much more traditional, straightforward um, kind of just hold the camera and let them do their thing. Scott, like get all sorts of different approaches to it to and, and the show and this is goes to the writers and the performers as well but also you know Atencio and his directing their use of different types of music uh and timing everything to 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 really give the feel of these different styles on what must be a zero budget is really impressive yeah definitely yeah, and I think also, like, when we're talking about the budget, and I kind of made reference to this in our Smorgasbord episode where I singled out the show for its use of makeup and hair, and it's just, mm-hmm. like, it's so good at maximizing everything because I keep going back to, like, Strike, Strike Force Eagle 3 The Reckoning, which <laughs> is their homage to Steven Seagal 90s action movies, and it's just so perfect. And just aesthetically, like, it's kind of videotapey, but a slightly higher quality videotape than the aerobics uh, episode. And it's just, they do so much with, as you said, Kate, just so very little. But you can't tell. And it's not one of those things where it's not like Tosh, where it's just like, oh, they're in front of a green screen. Oh, yeah, no, this is like really high production value that they're getting from very, very little. And it's just, the show had to be exhausting to do. <laughs> well, before we run out of time, because I know that would be an easy thing to do with this episode, we got to, I, I think, list some, like, favorite sketches, favorite uh, moments. So so who wants to go first with their, like, three or four sketches that come to the front of their mind that we haven't already said? Right, well, oh, have... that we haven't already said. Oh, yeah. let's see. <laughs> I was gonna say I, I I'm a big fan of the uh, two slapass sketches the the first one and its sequel that I believe it's called Slapass Two in Recovery. <laughs> I, those are both so utterly ridiculous and yet such a you know if you watch enough sports you know that is a very weird thing I think it's a weird thing that you know baseball players do and that you know that, I I think the, the way that that escalates is really funny. I, I do think the valet sketches, those always made me laugh. You know, the two, you know, probably the earlier ones are better with those guys because before you really know their shtick, but, you know, when it's just talking about Liam Neeson's, the Liam Neeson's and Bruce Willis, you know, you got to have Bruce Willis. And the, yeah. and the Annie Hathaways. <laughs> See, that's Why doesn't anyone little... like Annie Hathaways? I love Annie, I just, I love Annie Hathaways too, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think, like, there's... It's more like the like groups of sketches. I also like how they always had like Halloween episodes, which yeah. is so rare for non, you know, scripted season show. You know, for for a sketch show to kind of single out a specific holiday and then do sketches like the one with the extras on the 
Walking Dead esque show, mm-hmm. and, and I think that that that's a real high point. The idea of the the one guy who's been there forever, but no one never gets his time to shine, and the other guy Peel has no idea what he's doing, and yet oh, well, you know, it's not him. He's not the problem. I got the other guy. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's the one with uh, David Gentoli too. Like, they have so, such great. We haven't mentioned this yet, but the such great stunt casting for these little. Bits Little just bits, coming, yeah. you know, like or like when Andre Royo shows up for like two lines to be the the abusive father of these two like middle school kids that are they're being very truthful about why the one is beating up the other one. Uh, little things like that are super fun. And the Halloween episodes, I think, are some of their best single episodes, which we haven't talked about yet. The shows like flow as individual sketches, sure, but also as a constructed full episode. I think the the Halloween episodes tend to work. You know, have the highest hit to miss ratio of of the various episodes, at least for me. Uh, jo- uh, Josh, you just told us. Noel, did you have uh, any other favorite sketches we hadn't mentioned yet? Um, I think two of my favorite sketches, actually, I'm looking, come from the same episode. Um, I love when they attend Othello. <laughs> <laughs> and then they have- get guys Baltar show up as Shakespeare. Yes, yes. I, I James, love that. James, James Callis. Callis. Shows yes. up as Shakespeare. This guy's Walter. I don't know his real name. <laughs> <laughs> is really funny, but that's also the episode with um, High and Pot News. Yes. And yeah. I think that's actually like my favorite thing that they do is when, when they, they bring, bring a joke to its logical, logical conclusion, conclusion and, and then, then jump it just a little bit further. And I think that's what they actually ended up doing really well. Because, I mean, one of my other favorite sketches, and I basically send this sketch out every time um, the World Cup happens is the where he gets a red car and he dies. <laughs> and then he comes back to life, bouncing off the thing and scores the winning goal. And the guy who got the red card is just shocked that this is allowed. <laughs> and it's just, that's the thing that they do a really good job of is taking those jokes to really crazy extremes without making the joke feel run to the ground. So, like, another example that I really love is the Soul Food Diner, where the dishes just get progressively more horrible and ridiculous. And this kind of one... Again, getting back to this idea of code switching and one-upsmanship about solidifying your identity in some way, and that this that sketch in particular, like, plays that up a lot. The great punchline with that also, because you think after a certain point, you have you, you assume, at least I do as a viewer... Well, they're obviously making this up as I go along. There's no way this place has this, any of these menu items. But, of course, I, I forget what the last, like, one of the last things they mentioned is. But when the sketch ends, the waitress is like, do you, do you still want that? Like, do you want a napkin with that or something? And you realize, oh, yeah, all of that stuff they have at that diner. Like, that's the yeah. that's a great punchline kind of caps yeah. it. <laughs> um, what about you, Kate? Some of the ones we haven't mentioned that, uh, like, or, or I should say, when I think of Key and Peel, the ones that come to mind most or that I most uh remember and want to revisit a lot of them tend to be uh, ones commenting on racism uh and some of the big ones that we haven't even mentioned are the slave auction or the civil war reenactors which just i watched that one today and it just about killed me just because of uh, both of the the voice work and performance from both of them, but specifically Jordan Peele doing Butterfly McQueen in Gone with the Wind, uh, <laughs> as a as a as a fan aside from obviously the horrible racism of Gone with the Wind, and then also of course a dear a, dear, a big fan of Went with the Wind, the fabulous episode of the Carol Burnett Show, uh, to see that 
come in. That specific choice uh, was amazing. And the way that that episode builds and then uh, moves forward from there. Uh, so those are two two ones that I absolutely love. Or, or like the, um, the movie theater patrons also oh. is commenting on <laughs> expectations based on race yeah. that, I, that in a really delightful and hilarious way. Uh, so, so those are the ones that I, I go to first. But then I also have to give some love to the musical things because they do so many great musical uh, segments. Obviously, Les Mis comes to mind, we've already mentioned, but um, but but the the gospel choir, as someone who's spent a lot of time in church choirs and playing music for church and playing at weddings, I, started, I joined my church choir when I was in third grade and then started playing weddings professionally in eighth grade <laughs> and, you know, all the way, th- you know, have been playing as a musician, weddings my entire life. Uh, so I've been, spent a lot of time around, around churches and church choirs and everything. So I thought that was hilarious and pretty much perfect. Um, and it, even just looking at the most recent season, the Ray Parker Jr. sketch just, yeah. shouldn't have worked as long as it did. But for me, it totally <laughs> did. I, I like that they have such different um, realms of comedy they can go to. It's, it, it, it reminds me of something like Monty Python, where they can go super highbrow, like plenty of sketches that have like the Godfather kind of sketch with, again, use lot, they love to use opera when it's appropriate, down to <laughs> something like um, uh, just straightforward as the, the the bitch sketch where, you know, obviously it goes to absurdities, but it's really a very straightforward premise to they are not above uh, a dick joke or a fart joke or they will go anywhere in the spectrum and um, they, they are able to pull pull it off. And uh, that's, I think, part of what makes it so evergreen as well as, as the, like we've already said, the high production values and the, the creativity of the writing, the fact that they can play on multiple levels. There, there are a couple more sketches I want to bring up very quickly. Uh, there's Go Little Jaime, which I love partly because of the premise and partly because it really pushes <laughs> the the idea to this grotesque limit. And there's so many of those in the later seasons that do that. Another one that I love is the Family Matters sketch. I think it's also in the same season as, as Little Homie with, you know, you, you get Jordan Peele playing Carl Winslow. And, you know, he's technically playing Reginald Vell Johnson, but he's in the Carl Winslow costume, you know, uniform. Mm-hmm. And the way that that builds, and I believe, isn't it the kid who was the young Chris Rock? Yeah. In there was Chris as Urkel. I love that gag. That is a, that's a great sketch. And the other one is Black Ice. Mm. I want to be very careful how I say Black Ice. You know, the gag where it starts out as a report on the local channel about, oh, there's Black Ice in the city. But it turns into a very clear delineation of white versus black. You've got Key and Peele playing these two different guys in the field. And you got the two anchors in there. Uh, and it's a really, really great buildup. And I forget the exact phrasing of the final line of the sketch, but it turns into, you know, let's talk about how black people are ruining our country. And it's... <laughs> They really, it's a really good twist of the night. So, yeah, they're, they're, like, there's so many good examples of this, of them pushing the boundaries and commenting on race and identity, like we've talked about so far today. So Yeah, and uh, those are great picks. Uh, the, the, the nose-flipping office yes. workers. Nose-flip, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the, the office workers, the, or the one is just won't shut up about, about his sex life, and the capper is, oh, no, the guy's not homophobic. He's just an asshole. Uh, <laughs> You know, the different things like that. Again, I think they do a good job. They, uh, they tend to do a really good job on Keen Peel of ending sketches, at least in my memory. The ones yes. that I've watched recently, they, it's really hard and they do a good job. Um, but they also, um, yeah, there's, like I was saying before, I'm just going to keep repeating myself, so I'm going to cut it off here, I guess. They, I think the, the way that they craft their episodes tends to work well, tends to be a higher than average hit-to-miss ratio. And uh, I'm very glad that we got 
five seasons. As as awkwardly as it kind of went off the air with like no fanfare and very little warning, um, I'm just glad that we got five seasons, five good seasons, and then they they went out on top. Do you do you have any final thoughts uh, about Key and Peele, Josh? I mean, it, it was an incredibly, incredibly funny show, and I think they were smart to end it when they did. I'm sure they could have kept doing it for years if they wanted to, but, you know, it, I think the further they did it, the maybe they, not, maybe not the less they would have had to say, but the more the characters would have felt stale. So I think cutting it off when they did was a good idea, and I, I really cannot express how excited I am to see the movie that they're in, Keanu, in words, because... I really, really hope. Yeah. I really hope it's great because I have I have high hopes for it. So that trailer is, is funny, and that kitten is adorable. And I can totally <laughs> watch John Wick the comedy. Uh, so yeah, I have I have high hopes. Noel, do you have high hopes for Keanu? And uh, as well, do you have any final thoughts on Key and Peele? I do have really uh, high hopes for Keanu. Um, but yeah, no, I will just ditto what you guys have been saying and. I am also glad that they kind of... I'm glad that they actually ended when they did just from, like, a creativity standpoint because I think burnout with this kind of a sketch show is sort of inevitable, um, especially considering, like, the range of topics that they wanted to discuss. I don't think, like you said, I don't think they would have run out of ideas, but maybe ways to say those ideas and express those ideas in ways that continuously felt relevant, funny, and pointed maybe would have ended up in a land of diminishing returns, even with, like, short episode orders or anything. But on the other hand, I mean, we still get them popping up to do other things. Like, they did a Super Bowl commentary um, this uh, during the Super Bowl, um, which was, I'm sure, was will be really funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, so no, I think, I think that the show's just really great, and I think it was represents a real high-water mark and heralded a real the coming of a really high watermark for a lot of Comedy Central programming as well, which we didn't really discuss of how this show fit into Comedy Central's like little renaissance that they had um, towards the um, towards this part of the decade. Yeah, but no, yeah, loved it. Yeah, Keen Pills fabulous and super fun, and I look forward to. Yeah, I'm glad we got to meet them and get to know them as performers through this show. Uh, and I, I think I, I'm definitely going to be following Peter Tensio. And, you know, this is one of those names I will have an ear out for. Uh, but I think I also need to take a look at the writers uh, and, and get learn their names. Because you shouldn't be able to do this high hit-to-miss ratio on this sketch show. It's really hard. So I... I feel There's like I should learn names. names. The writers. Yeah, I was going to say Ian Roberts, who's a longtime UC yeah, Upright Citizens Brigade guy. He was one of the writers from the beginning. I think uh, Colton Dunn, who's on. The, you guys talk about Superstore at all? That show on NBC? Mm, every now and again, but it's been a while, yeah. He, he he plays the guy in the wheelchair on that mm-hmm. show. So he's so. There's a few people who are definitely like uh, uh, on screen talents as well, but very interesting group of writers from the names I've recognized. Yeah. yeah. Basically listeners, Key and Peel is great. And if you've gotten this far and you aren't a watcher of the show, first of all, I'm confused, but second of all, <laughs> waste no time, go get the DVDs and watch them. Cause, or, or go to Hulu and watch them. Cause they're fantastic. Um, Josh, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Masterpiece. Uh, I, I, I co-host Masterpiece Cinema, a podcast about all sorts of Disney movies, which means anything under the Disney banner. So Planes, Ella Enchanted, good movies as well. Uh, and uh, I didn't mention it before, I, I have a book out. If anybody's curious about reading a book on Pixar and nostalgia, go buy the book. It's called Yesterday is Forever. It's at thecriticalpress.com. It's at amazon.com. 
wherever fine books are sold. Yes, go check it out because it is awesome. And also, Thanks. unrelated, it has, uh, well, I guess kind of related, it has awesome cover art, too. I love, I love the cover. It does. Thank you. I didn't cool. do it, but thank you anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you once more, Josh, for coming on. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. 